afternoon. Welcome to the House Podcast or the House 94 Podcast, shall I say. We have a very special guest today. Uh, if you saw our last few episodes, we had uh, Dr. Mike Lindsay on mental health. We talked about the last dance last week. This week, we have the esteemed pleasure of having Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries in our midst, another one of our classmates. And uh, I'm just going to start off, uh, well, the topic for this week is silver rights. Um, we can get the, the, the link up so you can do some reading on silver rights and, and what that means. But we uh, felt like it was a really important topic and uh, felt like we had the ability to bring some good commentary on it. And obviously, as Morehouse man, we have the ability to reach out to, you know, the top minds in any field of endeavor. And again, we found another one for you, our man, Hassan, Dr. Jeffrey. So I'm going to go through the bio real quick. And then after that, we've got a series of questions we'll go through. And obviously, we'll get into our, um, you know, questions and answers in our, uh, our usual witty banter. <laughs> so, uh, Hassan Kwame Jeffries was born in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York. After graduating from Midwood High School in 1990, he headed south, enrolling at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, the nation's leading institution for educating African-American men, as you see presented before you today. Um, while matriculating in Morehouse, he was inducted into the Phi Beta Kappa Honor Society and initiated into the Pi Chapter of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Hassan graduated summa cum laude, make sure y'all caught that, summa cum laude, uh, for Morehouse with a BA in history in 1994. Legendary 94, as, as it's known in the Morehouse community. Uh, that same year, he left the new south of the old, moving to Durham, North Carolina, and enrolling at Duke University, where he earned an MA in American history in 1997, and a PhD in American history with a specialization in African-American history in 2002. While completing his graduate work, he lived periodically in Montgomery, Alabama, the birthplace of the modern civil rights movement. In 2002, he relocated to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where he served as the Bankhead Fellow in the History Department at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. He spent one year at Alabama teaching, teaching American history and African-American history. After time well spent in Old Dixie, or in the heart of Dixie, Hassan crossed, into the, uh, crossed the Ohio River and joined the faculty at The Ohio State University in the History Department. Since arriving at Ohio State, Hassan has taught graduate and undergraduate seminars on the civil rights and black power movements and surveys in African-American and American history. He has received several fellowships in support of his research, including a Ford Foundation postdoctoral fellowship. He has also regularly shared his expert knowledge of African-American history and contemporary black politics with the general public through lectures, teacher workshops, and frequent media appearances and documentaries, including, but not limited to, the Emmy-nominated four-hour PBS documentary, Black America Since MLK, and the Showtime documentary, Pariah, The Lives and Deaths of Sonny Lixon, uh, the great boxer. In 2009, Hassan published his first book, Bloody Lounge, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama's Black Belt. Bloody Lounge tells a remarkable story of the ordinary people and college-age organizers from the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee SNCC, which we all learned about from Lucasa in our uh, freshman year in, our, in the dorm, um, which ushered in the Black Power era by transforming rural Lowndes County, Alabama, from a citadel of violent white supremacy into the center of Southern Black militancy. They achieved this extraordinary feat by creating the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, LCFO, an all-Black independent political party that was also the original Black Panther Party. Bloody Lounge has been praised as the book historians of the Black Freedom Movement have been waiting for, and an invaluable contribution to the understanding or to understanding current and future conversations on race and politics. In 2019, 
Hassan edited Understanding and Teaching the Civil Rights Movement, a book of essays by leading civil rights scholars and teachers on how to teach the civil rights movement. He also wrote and narrated the 10 episode Audible original series, Great Figures in the Civil Rights Movement, which, is, which was released in 2020, February 2020. His current book project entitled Stealing Home, Ebbets Field and the Black Working Class Life in Post-Civil Rights New York, explores the struggle of working class African-Americans to secure and enjoy their freedom rights from the height of the civil rights era through the present by examining the experiences of the residents of Ebbets Field Apartments, an expansive 1,200-unit affordable housing complex built in 1962 on the site of old Ebbets Field, the former home of Major League Baseball's Brooklyn Dodgers. At Ohio State University, Hassan has served, has served or currently serves as a chairperson on the OSU Athletic Council, faculty fellow, Global Arts and Humanities Discovery theme, and faculty fellow for Curon Institute. In the classroom, Hassan has won every major teaching award that Ohio State has to offer. Uh, for his pedago pedagogical creativity and effectiveness, he's received Ohio State's 2012 Alumni Award for Distinguished Teaching, the university's highest award to teaching, and more recently, the 2019 Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Outstanding Teacher Award. Dr. Jeffers has worked on several public history projects, including serving as the lead historian of the uh, five-year, $25 billion renovation of the Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Hotel in the great city of Memphis, Tennessee, where I come from. Um, he is also the host of the podcast, Teaching Hard History, American Slavery, a production of the Teaching Tolerance Division of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which just wrapped its second season. Hassan resides in Columbus, Ohio with his wife, Rashida, and her three daughters. He travels frequently to the South to visit friends and returns often to Brooklyn to visit family. His areas of expertise include African-American history, U.S. history since 1877, human conflict, peace, and diplomacy, power, culture, and the state, race, ethnicity, and the nation. Uh, there was a lot to say, but it was all important because it's all relevant to his level of expertise, and it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today. So welcome, Dr. Jeffries, our friend and our classmate. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you, brother. I appreciate it. All right. Um, well, I mean, I guess we could kick it off. Uh, if you want to kind of give us a brief synopsis of civil rights and, and Black economic empowerment and what that generally means. And then we've got a, a series of questions that we're going to run around and go through. So you want to uh, do a, a brief kickoff and then we can get into the questions? Yeah, certainly. So the term civil rights, S-I-L-V-E-R, is a play on the term civil rights. We often hear about the civil rights movement uh, and the civil rights struggle but civil rights is actually a misnomer, as I often lecture about and talk to my students about. I say when we talk about the African-American freedom struggle and we call it simply or solely a civil rights movement, we are actually doing a disservice to the move to the black freedom struggle because the black freedom struggle wasn't simply about civil rights. Civil rights, of course, are those rights that are granted by the government, by state. The black freedom struggle was about civil rights and human rights. It was a freedom struggle. And if you just limit it to civil, civil rights, C-I-V-I-L, you miss all the other aspects of the agenda that Black folk have been fighting for since 1619, which includes economic empowerment. And so we, it, it is important to expand the terminology that we use so that we can actually see the full spectrum of, of freedom rights objectives that black folk have been fighting for. 
Now, of course, we think about something like education. Black people, we have been, our kids, we are in the struggle of making this possible for our kids to have uh, an equal education, the best education possible. There's nothing in the US Constitution that says anything about equal education. And yet we know that is one of the things that Black folk have been fighting for since it was illegal for Black folk to learn how to read and write. And it's the same thing around economic equality. Black folk have been fighting for economic equality since they were literally, we were literally in chains. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says anything about the right to a decent wage, the right to a minimum income, the right to economic equality. So we do, it's important to think about these other aspects of the Black freedom struggle, civil rights, economic struggle as being one of them. And then when we do that, it, the, the, the ways in which Black folk are engaged in activism and the things that they are doing now begin to make sense. So the reason why, first, just to back up for a second, I think it's important to establish that economic equality is real. Race-based economic equality is real by every measure and every standard. When you look at both wealth and income and break it down by race, African-Americans are trailing significantly by multiple factors. And, and, and often we think about income and we look at the last 50 years and up until about 30 years ago, the income gap by race was actually shrinking. More recently, the income gap by race has been expanding. But more telling has been the gap in wealth. And wealth, of course, as you all know, uh, is the measure of sort of assets as opposed to just income, assets minus, minus debts as opposed to just income. And that gap is astronomical. We are talking about the average white household having a uh, uh, wealth, uh, uh, their wealth at $130,000, $140,000. The average black household having wealth at less Probably than $70,000. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is a, and that gap is growing. And it's not new. We have to go back literally, not just to the moment of emancipation, but to when we were considered to be assets, when we were physically held in bondage as, and, and counted as wealth for white people. And then we get to the moment of 1865 and we gain our, our liberty, we gain our freedom, but we're liberated with only uh, our skills and our love for one another. We're not liberated with any assets. There is no transfer of wealth. There is no land that is redistributed. And so we go from 250 years of bondage to suddenly being uh, obtaining our freedom in a, in a capitalist society with no assets, with no wealth, and then having to start from scratch. And so when we actually look at the wealth gap today, the surprise isn't that there is one and that is growing. The surprise is that it's, it's at what it is because there's no reason why we should even be that close and we're not close at all. Uh, and so this is a long, there's a long history uh, leading up to it or creating this, a lot of factors, more than just sort of personal and individual decisions. This is baked into the cake. This is systematic and this is structural. But at the same time, we have always had black folk, this community, our community has always struggled both individually and collectively 
to try to get that leg up, to try to gain a modicum of economic independence, to try to gain uh, a modicum of economic autonomy. Wow, that was an excellent uh, synopsis. Cool. Uh, I think you had a, a, the first question. Yeah, so yeah, there we go. So, man, first of all, thank you for, 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 for giving us that synopsis there um, from slavery to now. But let's kind of talk about now, right? Uh, what do you think some of the contemporary drivers um, that are race-based, that, that causes the race-based inequality from an economic standpoint? So, as I mentioned before, the there has been a shrinking up until recently, last decade or so, in income income disparities. So as African, you know, once you get past sort of legalized segregation, <laughs> jobs begin to open up, there begins to be a shrinking. African-Americans are still trailing. There's still an income gap. African-Americans still make about 80% on the dollar for white Americans, African-American women, even less. But more significantly than that, it's wealth. And wealth in America is tied to home ownership. And what we see is, especially up until the 1980s, African-Americans, really, as long as African-Americans have been here, right? But starting in the 1930s, coming out of the Depression, one of the ways that the U.S. government, the America, is able to lift itself out of the Depression is essentially by creating a new mortgage system, opening up banking and making it possible for middle-class Americans to purchase homes. The vast majority, and Michael, you know this, the vast majority of Americans have their wealth or their wealth is tied to their homes. And African-Americans from the 1930s through the 1970s were literally excluded, formally discriminated against in the housing market. And so you have a 30 or 40 year period when African-Americans simply could not gain access to the main instrument for generating wealth in America, home ownership. And then in the mid 1980s, there begins to be this push to desegregate uh, or deregulate rather financial instruments and regulation. Now, none of that in the 1930s or 1980s, financial deregulation is mentioning anything about race. But what we begin to see in the 1980s that will build up over the next 30 years culminating in the financial collapse tied to the mortgage industry in 2008 is systematic predatory lending directed at African-Americans. And so we see starting in the 1980s and building slowly up until the turn of the 20th century, the real estate industry, whether it's bankers, financial lenders, targeting African-Americans with these financial instruments that were truly ruinous, higher mortgage rates, penalties for subprime loans that we would all hear about in the early 2000s, higher penalties for uh, obtaining loans. So two things will happen. And this is moving into that contemporary moment when you look at the last 30 years. Once African-Americans are starting to gain access to uh, the housing market, actually gaining access to the principal way, the avenue that Americans have been able to generate wealth, they are doing it already at a disadvantage because they've been excluded from it. But when they get in it, they're unable to gain access on an equitable basis. And then when you hit the mortgage collapse, the mortgage industry collapses in 2008, it's calamitous because 
intergenerational wealth, which has slowly been building, even at disadvantage, even at a great disadvantage, begins to just dissipate and disappear. And so African-Americans, once again, are hit disproportionately hard, just like they are by the coronavirus, disproportionately hard by that mortgage meltdown, and we have not recovered. And now with the coronavirus hitting and the uh, economy in a tailspin, we have, we have fallen back on our wages, our earned income, and now we're even losing that. And so we find ourselves now in a precarious situation in which that income gap is growing because we're losing income and the wealth gap is growing because we lost so much in the run up to 2008 and then lost so much in 2008 and afterward. Sobering words, man. Kwesi, I think you got one for us. So it's all again, thanks for coming on. Uh, how have black people responded historically to economic inequality individually and collectively? Yeah, you know, as in, in, in the field of history, there's this, there's a segment of historians, white historians who study US history and, and who, who study labor history. And there's this argument that in the 1930s, it was white labor activists who begin to organize uh, black folk working in steel mills in uh, Pittsburgh and textile mills in North Carolina that really introduced African-Americans to the importance and the urgency of fighting for their economic rights, whether it was on the shop floor uh, or, in the, or, or, or in housing and the like. And that's, that's, that's a nice little myth that white folk tell themselves to make themselves feel good about uh, being a part of the civil rights struggle. There is ne because there is never a time when African-Americans weren't interested and actively engaged in trying to develop economic independence and economic autonomy. And this begins, you literally have it, when African-Americans are enslaved, we see them actively trying to accumulate property, right? Whether it was small trinkets and tokens engaged in commerce. I mean, so we think of them as sort of these uh, you know, automatons who are just struggling in the fields and they're doing that, but individually they understood how important it was to be an active agent in the existing economy. And so it's not a surprise at the moment of emancipation, whether that was in 1865 across the United States or in New York in 1827, for example, that the first thing that black folk do when they gain their emancipation, when slavery is officially abolished in the state of New York in 1827, is they move out to what would be Long Island, Brooklyn, and they begin to establish their own communities in which they have their own, they own their own land, have their own homes, develop their own shops, and develop their own uh, commerce, system of commerce. So they understand the importance of economic independence connected to economic community solidarity. And that continues after the broader emancipation in 1865. We see African-Americans clamoring for uh, uh, land ownership. Like they understand in this agrarian economy that owning land is a way that they are going to be able to actualize their liberty, to give real meaning to freedom. And so we think about, we all know about sharecropping. And we're like, oh man, sharecropping ties people to the land. And it was this exploitative system. It, and, and it was in practice, but in theory, it was a way that African-Americans who knew that 
they were denied land ownership, land that they were entitled to, because they didn't want just any land. They wanted the land that they had been working their entire lives. And when that is denied them, they're forced to go into these economic arrangements where they say, well, at least I'm not working in, like, in, in, a, in a slave gang, right? At least as a sharecropper, in theory, I can bring the labor, you give the land, and I can work under my own terms. And in theory, it was fair and equitable. In practice, it wasn't. But again, so that ties Black folk to the land. But then when African-Americans begin to move off the land, they then too are like, look, we got to fight for fair wages. We got to fight for better wages. And we see them not waiting on white folk to help them organize, but organizing themselves as labor unions and the like. And that continues on as practice through the 1960s. In the 1960s, as we move out of the civil rights era into the black power era, I mean, look, Dr. King right there in, in, in Memphis is doing what? He's assassinated in support of sanitation workers who are engaged in the strike for living wages. So they understand the importance and the power of economic, of wage equality. And then we move out of the black, the civil rights era into the black power era. We have African-Americans saying, you know, it's never just about individual income. Let's continue to develop one of the ways that we've been able to get ahead in the past, and that is through cooperative economics. So we see them investing, again, in economic cooperatives, whether it's in a rural space or in an urban space. And then we be, and, and you've always had Black banks, Black institution building. Now, there are times when you haven't been able to get the financial, um, uh, the, you have been able to get through the financial regulations to get the particular licensing uh, licensure, licensures for banks. So they what do black folk do? They pool their money through missionary and benevolent societies, uh, through fraternal organizations. So there's always been this sense of the need for economic autonomy through community solidarity. There's always been an effort to build black wealth and to share economic burdens through cooperative economic practices. And there's always been a, a, a realization that wage equality is also important. And so you have those who are trying to invest investing. You have those who can't, who don't have the means to invest, partnering with one another. And you have always had Black folk engaged in this struggle in this capitalist society for fair wages and equal wages. Say this is amazing. It's like we often have intellectual conversations amongst ourselves and we have a tendency to use anecdotal information, right? You're breaking this down from an intellectual perspective with facts and a, a deep-rooted understanding of what's going on. It just makes this whole topic not just, uh, you know, the top of mind or, or like informative. This is like, it's really changing perspectives and really giving us some deep insight into it. So, I man, this is like, uh, this is amazing, man. Chuck, I think you got a, you got a question for us? Yeah. Uh, again, um, man, it's a pleasure to have you on board. Um, it was... Um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, I guess, it's, is it Dr. or Pastor John Bryant? Mm -hmm. And uh, he was, uh, he mentioned that, uh, I just wanted to know your thoughts. He was just talking about the mindset of how we spend our money uh, today in current conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think, uh, how, we can change or what programs we can implement to change the mindset of black folks in the way we spend our money. Yeah. 
I think two things are important to, to acknowledge up front. One, black folk don't have a lot of money. They have far less money than white folk. Two, even, despite that, black folk have a higher savings rate. And, and we all have had those, you know, you look back to your elders, your grandmothers, like, well, how did they even make it through? Like, they ain't have nothing, right? But they, so one of the things that we, we, one of the things I'm always cautious about and worry about is being too critical of black folk saying, well, they don't know what they're doing. It's like, well, in fact, there is a strong tradition, a legacy of, of very smart financial management on the part of black folk, right? Like they, that's the only reason, that's the only how, the way we've gotten to where we are, right? Is the financial sense of black folk. Now, that doesn't mean, so for example, I have had family members who have owned homes, right? I mean, in the, in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, but they were in redlined black neighborhoods that never appreciated. Yeah. And so when they passed on, that home that they purchased for $12,000 was still $12,000 40 years later, right? In yeah. Newark and East New York. And so we didn't have the luxury of then having intergenerational wealth to be transferred so that the next generation could take that and invest it and move it forward. So I think just one, we always should be cautious. And I'm not saying Brian is saying this. We always should be cautious not to be too critical of black folk and their economic habits or their spending habits when we know that we actually do better and, and are more cautious with our money as a whole than white Americans. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is we live in a consumer culture in a consumer economy where everything in the world, every signal that we receive says spend, 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 spend. Don't worry about saving, spend. And then when black folks spend, and we get mad at them. We get critical at them. Like, what are you talking about? You just told everything, you, every signal is that you're saying is consume, consume, consume. And then when we do, when we go out and buy a PlayStation, and you say, well, why did this Negro buy a PlayStation when he should have took that $300, $299 and saved it? They like, well, hell, if you're, if you're getting 0.2% a month on $299, right, you're better off buying a PlayStation and getting some mental relief. And so I think we need to take seriously the situation and circumstance that black folk find themselves in. Now, that being said, we do not as a community, as a people have the luxury of having the same spending habits as white folk, right? Like we don't. And, and then we have to be aware of that. There is a double standard. Uh, and so while on the one hand I said, we shouldn't be critical of black folk for being very American because that's all they're doing. We also have to say, listen, we're at a distinct disadvantage and we don't have the luxury of engaging in the same kinds of behavior. But at the same time, we also don't have the privilege of having access to the same kinds of financial instruments. It's hella hard to save when you can't put money in the bank and the only financial institution that's in your neighborhood is a payday loan center. Now look, that's not all of us. We have some. All of us in the city have broken into the middle class and we have to be middle class and above and we have to be sensible with our money, invest it, save it for our children and for others. But that's such a small percentage of people, right? And so we do have to think about structural change 
and the way we can change the, the economics of the society to make it possible for those who are doing without to have a little more. Yeah, that's excellent. I agree. Um, yeah, especially the, the last part. I, was, I hadn't even thought about it like that. The point about the uh, the PlayStation give you a little bit of mental health, which is worth better than 0.02%. <laughs> that's true as hell. <laughs> that's financial, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, what's the, the trade-off there? Exactly. Hey, Trump, uh, you want to oh, go ahead, cool, you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, man, I mean, like, to your point, when you think about, hey, save, 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 and when the net benefit, your mental health is much more important than that, that measly you get on, at the bank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Crop, you got one for us? Yeah, and it's really a follow-up. Um, you may have touched on this, but I wanted a, a little point-by-point -point analysis as to what are the solutions that we can take as a community to decrease the wealth gap? I mean, we've got, um, although there, uh, you know, we, we have a huge service industry, uh, you know, blacks in the service industry who aren't making enough money, who are have to save and they can't save. Um, but you have persons who, you know, are middle income and higher, as you stated before, who have the ability to not only lift up those behind us, but we have the ability along with those, you know, whether they be athletes or uh, you know, hedge fund managers or whatever, we have the ability there to, you know, create something. Um, and given that fact, what do you believe? Uh, does any of that come to play? Do you believe that there is a way that we can decrease the wealth gap? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I, I think, I think, I think there, there are ways. And I think we do have to be consciously aware that we can decrease the wealth gap. And I'll point out a couple of those, I think, and I would love to hear what you all think, too, because you have your business mind much more so than me. I could put it in historical perspective, but y'all got the money. So in addition... In that's, a, that's just cool in James, dog. I think it's important to recognize, though, that there are real limits to what we all could do and what we can do as a community, given the way the society is, is, is structured economically, right? Like you can tell um, poor folk, look, you need to save more. But the way you make money in investment is by investing money. Right? If you don't have money to invest, you can get the same rate of return, right? You know, if you're investing $10 versus somebody's investing $100,000 at the same rate of return, you still ain't got no money 10 years later, right? I mean, so part of it isn't just sort of habits of mind, right? Part of it is going to be is really going to be structural. How do we restructure this larger society so those who are disadvantaged can benefit from it? So, but that's that, that's a big sort of social cultural shift. The question then, I think, Crump, that you're really getting at is what what can we do in the interim? Because it's not enough to simply say, "Well, hell, ain't nothing we can do." Then we just all in it for ourselves. And, that, and that's a valid question. I think that's the question that Black folk have been trying to address in various ways as long as we've been here. I think the first thing to, to, to realize is that one, again, wealth in America on an individual level is driven by home ownership. So we have to be wise and, and do that sort of financial literacy about how can we get into homes? How do we make wise decisions if we're breaking into the uh, a, a middle class in terms of gaining access to homes and home ownership. 
as the way it's set up, that that is going to be the key to building wealth for the average black person in America, just as it has been the key to building wealth for the average white person in America. And you need some financial literacy around that, right? Not only savings, but you know, what's the, you know, how do I avoid a predatory loan? You know, what's the advantage of home, home ownership versus renting? What's a good purchase in a good neighborhood? What's an investment versus what is purchasing a home and then being uh, house poor, right? So, so that, that's critically important. But I think there's also uh, uh, an important role to be played for black business folk. And as, as black folk who enter into business, especially as entrepreneurs and have their own businesses, I don't think it is enough to simply say, you know, how much can I make, which in a capitalist society is totally fine. But I think we have the added burden of having to ask and say, how many people can I employ? Because although we know there is a real difference between income and wealth, people still need jobs. And that is especially going to be important as we come out of this corona crisis and we don't know what this economy is going to be going forward. You know, we have to, we are now in, as you mentioned, a full service economy, right? This is, so there's, there's, there's two types of jobs. And all of them, one is about serving people, right? And that, and that runs from whether you're working at the fast food restaurant or you are a physician or a teacher, Right? Like I am serving people. My job is to serve people. But the difference is degree and access to education. Right? So me serving people as a college professor means that I don't lose my job when this coronavirus pandemic hits. If you're a physician, you're not losing your job. So there's a diff that, that, that knowledge economy in this service era is so critical. But that, again, is connected to wages, which is important. But that's only part of the equation. We also have to have, and that's connected to that sort of the business entrepreneur side, but we also have to have um, those, those collective investments, financial literacy, so that we can tap into the ways that wealth has always been generated here in the United States, which is through home ownership. And I think in the interim, that's going to be critically important. No more hands let's hang, let's hang. Let's do a hand, hand up. That's, that's good. Absolutely. To piggyback off that, Crump, I got a question for you. Like, you, you're a very influential attorney in uh, D.C., has done very well. Like, from, from, from your vantage point, like the, the good doctor just said, being an entrepreneur yourself, what are some of the things, give me, give me three things you think we, we kind of can do to try to, you know, to help the brothers and sisters, you know, kind of uplift to go forward. What, what are some of your thoughts? I think, uh, Crump. I, yeah, I think they touch upon that, uh, uh, cool is that uh, first off, first of all is building our businesses and employing as uh, Dr. Jeffrey says employing those underneath you I think is 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 one of the first things that we need to start we got to start growing our businesses um, yeah you know so we can start employing those so that they can learn from underneath us um, and that and that's twofold one is one just giving employment you know to somebody who needs it and then two, uh, having somebody be able to look up to you to say, damn, maybe this is something that I want to do. So they gain some type of practical knowledge and then they can go to college or go to law school or what have you, right? And mm -hmm. so when you build upon that, 
and you you meant you you kind of create a mentor mentee relationship among those in the community i think that's one of the primary things that we can start doing um second um i think we we've got to look at prior models look at the jews right mm -hmm. um look at other immigrants that come into this country um of course you know of course we have a lot of them don't have the advent of 400 years of oppression of slavery however not everybody came to this country with you know silver spoons in their hands mm -hmm. and um they but they collectively worked as a people in clusters whether it be the jews in new york city or whether it be the somalians in this case in minnesota there are different ethnic groups who have worked together and been able to use their resources amongst each other to start growing their community and i think that's what african americans need to do um we struggle to do that because of, I believe, integration kind of was one of the worst things that kind of happened to us because it took that, you know, that ability to be self-sufficient and build community amongst ourselves. Um, but that, that's the second thing. Um, the third thing, I think, it, it, I think we need to start reaching out those persons who have made it, right? Those persons like you, cool, who got that money, who got that, uh, that house on the lake. You know, those persons who so, excuse uh, me, sir. I'm, I'm the one on the lake. Cool's the one that's rich. Right. I'm, the one, I'm the one on the lake. Cool's the one that's rich. Generational oh, wealth. <laughs> so those persons who have real generational wealth, right? Um, those persons who's who's, you know, whether they're kids and grandkids are probably straight, you know. I'm not talking to the high income earners who still got to pay out all this money for private school, like maybe myself or my wife or whatever, but we still damn near broke after we're paying off our student loans and all that stuff. I'm talking about the persons who have actual wealth, uh, whether it be the athletes when they start first, you know, are in the league or whatever, or uh, the, 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 the bank manager who just gave $1 million to Spelman uh, recently. Those persons, I think, have a duty to kind of try to collectively figure out how do we lift up other persons, right? How do we combine our money, whether it be, how do we create banks, you know, in different communities? How do we create uh, co-ops, you know, uh, you know, the different ways to get our own economy within our communities going. And I think their lack thereof, it puts us at an extreme disadvantage because in reality, yeah, you know, black folks, there is a huge, uh, wealth gap, but we're making more money now collectively than we've ever made, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we have people who can, you know, if they lift up as they climb, you know, and actually give back, then I think that is one of the ways that we can, you know, try to collectively put ourselves in a position where that, you know, that wealth gap decreases collectively amongst other people. Hey, Jack, just right quick to add to what you said, do you, do, would we add government into that formula? Hell no. Okay. See, that's the, that's, that's the problem. And, and, and the reason why I like this topic is because we've got civil rights versus civil rights. The first civil right, you know, in my opinion, was the dollar bill, mm -hmm. right? The dollar bill is the first civil right. It's about economics. This is a capitalistic society. At the end of the day, America don't give a shit about you in your hand or wanting to from the government. They want to see white folks have this thing, which is bullshit, that, oh, I've lifted myself from my own bootstraps, so you can do too. Well, we know that's not the truth because everybody has to help. 
But we've got to be self-sufficient and we've got to learn not to depend on government because once you start begging, depending on government, you start looking like that beggar. The Jews came in uh, when they came out from Europe and they started settling in New York City um, uh, in the early 1900s or whatever. They weren't, they weren't landowners in Europe. They were barred from owning land. They came in, they clustered together in New York and they were seamstress. They were, uh, you know, uh, cloth makers, whatever, you know, but they collectively put their stuff together in the different industries that they brought over from Europe and then created areas. And now they're the diamond, uh, the, the, the diamond makers or the diamond uh, business owners in New York. They're the, 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 the captains of the garment industry. And now they make up 3% of the country, but they, they essentially uh, own probably about 75%, that might be a little bit too far, but they own more than half the, the country's wealth. You know what I'm saying? So the model is already there and it doesn't matter who is president. It doesn't matter if it's Trump, it doesn't matter if it's Bush, it doesn't matter who is president when you have self-sufficiency within an economic, uh, when, you're, when you're economically uh, dependent upon each other. Because essentially, I rely on myself. I don't have to worry about a handout. I don't have to go lobby to Congress about, you know, let me get this civil right. Can you give me, you know, can you give me A, B, and C, right? You don't have to worry about that because you already created it within your own community. So you don't need to be thinking about what the government can give you. The Jews, the Asians, they don't care about who's president, right? Because they are self-sufficient. Right. They don't have to rely on anybody else. Right. Man, this is a great discussion, brothers. I got a quick question. Um, we've heard the buzzword about the stakeholder class in this, in this discussion. Can you explain what the stakeholder class is and what kind of responsibility they have in this whole thing? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that can be, stakeholders can be broadly defined. And I think in the African-American community, it needs to be broadly defined. Um, and, and, and we have always, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, the stakeholder class is, you know, who sees themselves as having an investment in the community. And I think we all should have that investment in the community because if it wasn't for us, if it wasn't for the community, we wouldn't be where we stand now. And so, you know, in the, you know, Crump, as you were pointing out, in the post-segregation era, you know, during the era of segregation, you know, being a part of the stakeholder class was a little bit easierly, easier to identify because there were limits to where, you, where else you could go. Right? There, there were no other options. It was clear you all, we were all in the same neighborhood. We all had to shop at the same places. We all had to bank and, and put our money and our two, pen, our two cents you know, in, the, in, 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 in the same uh, benevolent societies and the like. Well, now we have a few more options. We can live in different places. We're not necessarily clustered and confined, although most still are. We still live in a highly segregated world. And so because of that, we have, we have more and more of us, not, not all, certainly not even the majority, I think, uh, who no longer see themselves as having a stake in the interests and the advancement of the community. I would argue that we are all still stakeholders and we ought to see ourselves as stakeholders in the African-American community, even if we find ourselves not living fully amongst our people, because we're still gonna interact we're still, we still need that strong cultural component. 
because that is how our people have survived through 400 years up until this point in the, in the current moment. So I think, I think the stakeholder classist idea um, is really everyone, but especially those when it comes down to thinking about sort of the economics of our, of our community, the, the, the civil rights, those who have to take the leadership in this direction are those who have the business savvy, are those who are the entrepreneurs, are those who have made their way uh, into the corporate world and had success. In those areas, we need to turn to those folk and say, okay, what can we do as a community? How can you provide leadership to the broader community? And that just doesn't mean, you know, the brothers who are making minimum wage and less. That also means those of us who are relatively high income earners by comparison, but who aren't the business people to say, hey, you need to be doing, you need to be investing your money like this, right? Like that is the kind of leadership I think that we all could benefit from. You know, when it comes to sort of religion and spiritual leadership, we turn to our pastors and our spiritual leaders, that's fine. When it comes to education or politics, we turn to our political, we also need to have those economic leaders uh, who have a, who see and understand the importance of community who still love our people uh, and, and want our people to succeed and say, okay, I understand this isn't just about a measure of personal responsibility. I understand this isn't about government dependence, but I also realize that the government has a role and a responsibility not to get in our way and to provide the same steps to go forward that it, and advantages that it has done for everybody else. And so I think the stakeholders need to be broadly defined I think we are stakeholders in different ways. But then I also think that as we go as a community, so goes the nation. Uh, and, and, and that has always been the case. Uh, and so part of that stakeholder uh, uh, group are also, are also those outside of the community, although they ought not be the leaders and the primary decision makers uh, for our community. Brother, you need to be on TV, man. You, you, you could be on any one of these spots they do every week. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> these answers are so tight. It's so legit. <laughs> I love it. Um, I do have a quick question, though. We talk about financial literacy and all of that. That's not something that, that a lot of African-American kids are taught in the home. Uh, you know, some of us are fortunate to have parents that, that, you know, were savvy. But even, you know, some of us that are well off or, or came up with, with educated parents, they didn't know a lot about financial literacy about buying stocks and bonds and how to really invest money. At what level of education and like at what point do you think they need to start introducing financial literacy and financial education to children so they can kind of get a leg up when they start to, you know, begin their adult lives? Yeah, you know, at, in, at the, in the ideal world, we would begin it early on. We begin talking about savings. We begin talking about investment. I mean, you, 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 Credit, start yeah. this, you start this in preschool and kindergarten, right? I mean, you, you're, you're in a capitalist society, a capitalist society, you need to understand the consumer side, but then also the producer side and the investment side. I think our challenge as a community is we're out of necessity, we're stuck in survival economics. And we've mastered that. We've ma we know how to survive, right? And, and intuitively, and, but also these are the practical lessons, but survival isn't going to get you to the next level that we're talking about survival economics isn't going to get you there, although most of our folk have to have survival economics. And I think those instincts for survival economics actually translate very well to, to, to that next level of sort of financial literacy. 
but we never get there because we're stuck trying to survive as a whole. And then those, the handful that break out, you know, haven't had that financial literacy or those assets to carry with them. Like you could be a great investor. If you ain't got nothing to invest, right? And no one is giving you the capital, then what are you gonna do? You're still surviving. And so part of it is yes, financial literacy, but you can know all of the financial tricks. You can know all about investments if you have nothing to invest, right? You're still back in the same hole. So I think financial literacy begins early on. It has to go beyond the survival economics. But at the same time, we have to be thinking about sort of ways and opportunities to expand wealth and expand wealth generating opportunities for the broader community so they can actually apply the, the instruments of fi financial literacy to their everyday lives. Fantastic. And I want to I want to touch on that, too, um, because one thing that people need to start discussing uh, along with financial literacy is estate planning and the two go hand in hand. Um, because, you know, I, I do the, about, probably about a good 35, 40% of my practice consists of estate, state and business planning. And one of the ways that we can create generational wealth is through the use of insurance and trust, which is people have this thing where they believe trusts are for rich people, but it's really something that can be done early on uh, once we first start out, uh, start working. And a lot of people just don't know that. And so I think one of the main things we need to get out is we need to educate uh, folks at some point on the on financial literacy, but I think even more importantly, the estate planning aspect of it too. I just want to throw that out there. And I, 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 was, I think there are different, and that's a, such a, an important crucial point, because I think there are, you know, we often think about financial literacy. We think, okay, how can we help poor people better manage their you know minimum wage income checks right it's like no financial literacy is a spectrum and it goes all the way up right so those who have purchased property who have homes whose parents have homes that have appreciated they absolutely need to have that degree of financial literacy they're talking about trust and estate planning so it never stops that aspect of learning as any other aspect of learning never stops and that i think is going to be crucial for us as a community moving forward collectively and narrowing, narrowing that uh, wealth gap. James, kick it off. What you got for us? Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Dr. Jeffries. And I'm going to just bring it forward and make it relevant, even with COVID-19 and the pandemic. And, you know, the government under the CARES Act was able to push out the Paycheck Protection Program, Triple P. And what I found interesting is that an application, you know, no longer than two pages, providing economic stability, infusion of cash and capital. But what I was dumbfounded with is that the number of minority businesses that weren't able to capitalize on it per se. And I just really couldn't get my arms around why that was the case. And then I saw subsequently that Magic Johnson was going to also put a fund together to help minority businesses as part of like kind of an offshoot of the Triple P program. But again, I was just wanting to get your thoughts on, you know, how can that be where you have this pot of money that's accessible, but yet at the same time, not accessible to minorities, not minority businesses? Yeah, I think that's a great example. And we're seeing, James, as you pointed out, in real time, sort of economic inequality and what that looks like. Because there's nothing in uh, the PPP and the CARES Act that says we're going to exclude black businesses. So in theory, with colorblind legislation 
everybody should have equal access to it. But when you look at the outcome, you realize this tremendous disparity. And the, and, and the reason is quite clear. We have Magic Johnson, white businesses have Bank of America. And that's the difference. And by that, I mean businesses that already had pre-established relationships with large financial institutions already had lined up essentially their applications. And I know this because as a chairperson for the, uh, uh, the board of directors for the ACLU of Ohio, we were following that. And it was like, okay, those who have pre-established relationships, lending relationships with large banking institutions, they were coming to us and everyone else who didn't have this kind of relationship. And we know small businesses tend not to have those types of uh, access to, to capital and to financial lending institutions. They were left waiting. Well, something may be for you at the end, but we're going to take care of our clients first. And so we have to be, and this is where I think, uh, you know, the sort of government does have a role that we have to push them to say, wait a minute, if you're going to pass this legislation, it needs to be color conscious because if we just do it, and that's not a handout, that's just being fair and equitable because what we consider to be fair and equitable, even when we're not um, uh, explicitly discriminating against black folk, we will be discriminated against because we're still dealing with the legacies of institutional racism and, and, and discrimination. And that plays out with this type of government program where small businesses and particularly minority owned black owned businesses are left out, are left out in the cold because they don't, they've never been able to establish these relationships with these lending institutions. That's, that's a great point. I, I just want to intervene just real quick because I think you, that is true. Um, however, I have a, my law school roommate is actually the administrator at the, uh, the, the top lawyer at SBA, Small Business Administration. And what's interesting now is, is that uh, they forced a lot of these, uh, you know, Fortune 500 corporations and other, you know, companies to give back a lot of the money that they were able to receive. However, but what's interesting to note is, is that a lot of the small minority businesses, and in, 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 I mean the, the Black community, um, have not taken advantage. They have not taken advantage of actually getting that. And so, although, you know, when the PPP program first came out, you're absolutely right. The companies were already lined up in place. They had their lawyers and accountants in place to get those loans. And we were at a, a disadvantage because we don't have those that infrastructure. But now we're seeing that a lot of that money is getting, have been, has been returned. So there is money still out there even now. However, we're not taking advantage of it. And so I, um, you know, I had started this D9 coalition uh, in the county where I had got uh, kind of my, I'm a legislative care, legislative uh, chair for the, uh, for Omega Sci-Fi in Prince George's County. And so I got, uh, all of the legislative chairs, all the other D9 organizations that say, look, let's reach out to these other, um, to these small businesses, you know, to see what we can do to help them. And so a lot of them just plainly did not know what they could do. They just didn't know what they didn't know. And so our whole focus was like, damn, we got to educate them because it's not that, you know, yes, they may have been discriminated against, but at the same time, they just don't think or have no realm of, okay, how do I take advantage of the opportunity now that it has represented itself? So that's part of the problem too, is that we've got to re-educate ourselves 
And sometimes we think for whatever reason, oh, you know, that's not money. I know I can't get it. It's like a culture of ineptitude where we just believe we don't, we're not supposed to get that money. And so we've got to change that. So I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a measure of education, but as you, as you mentioned, well, why on earth would anyone have this attitude, right? Well, because historically we haven't been able to access that stuff. Now things do change. Access does open up. It's not fair and, and fully equal, but we do have to have, as you were pointing out, that increased financial literacy at all levels. So even our small business owners can be aware of the fact that, wait a minute, when these pools of money and opportunity open up, you have to try and access. It may not be easy. You won't, you may not be at the front of the line, but if it comes down, you need to be there and this is how you can do it. I mean, so that I think is a good example of what needs to take place and also the obstacles, both structural and cultural that stand in our way of moving forward collectively on the business level. All right, this has been fantastic to see it. I think we got one last question for you, Dr. Jeffries. Hang on. Lou, you got one for us? Two-fold question. Before I begin, I want to um, thank Hassan for coming through and uh, speaking on this subject. I know it was one that uh, our, our team was looking forward to and um, offered some insight into it. Um, first question. I had, and I think it may be obvious, forgive me, what, what's the origin of the roots of the race-based uh, inequality with economics? Well, I'll tell you, the, the origin is slavery. Mm-hmm. And, and the principal legacy of slavery is white supremacy. And when dealing with white supremacy, we're not just talking about sort of individual manifestations of racism, we're talking about institutionalized discrimination. And so we, we, we heard the example, I think it was Crumple, you offered the example of the immigrants coming over uh, and being able to having to struggle and work hard. And absolutely everybody has to work hard in America, but nobody has faced laws that, per, that explicitly said, you cannot purchase a home here. You cannot get a loan here. I mean, black folk are the only folk, uh, essentially as a group collectively who have laws that have prevented them. And that's a legacy, that's a reflection of white supremacy, but also a legacy of slavery, right? And so I think this, we have to put, even the experiences that we have on today in this historic continuum, because otherwise, if we don't, then we're just like, well, black folk just don't know how to manage money. It's like, no, black folk haven't had the opportunity uh, to earn the money that they would need to build the wealth over the years. And that has everything to do with slavery starting off, white supremacy as a legacy, because we're not, we're not supposed to build wealth. We're supposed to work for white people. That is what our, that's what we were brought here for. That's what our role was supposed to be after emancipation. And the only time that has changed is when we began to see, we move into a post-industrial society, and then we became excess labor and not surprisingly, mass incarceration began to grow. And so once our value as laborers began to evaporate, then we became profitable as people, bodies to be warehoused. And so our very presence, when we're talking about how do we generate wealth, I think we have to be clear that that wasn't our purpose. And laws were set up to prevent us from doing that. And we're working, swimming upstream against that so two things uh one's for uh crump 
So it all goes back to slavery. Seems to be a common thing. Um, secondly, so historically, I know there are um, there has to have been efforts uh, within our community uh, to break out of this economic inequality. Um, can you give some examples of of those instances and why they failed, or you know, where can we learn from? where those movements began and ended? Yeah, well, no, that's a great question. Cause is it is, for, okay. it is important. I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I didn't know who that was for. I thought you said Crump, go ahead. Oh, okay, go, go, yeah, Crump, go ahead. Oh, who was it for? I didn't know. I thought I heard Crump. Dr. Jeffries. Okay. So, well, I, I would love to hear your thoughts too on that Crump too. So I'll throw out a couple examples that, 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 that come to mind immediately. You know, after emancipation, I mean, first you have to, anything before 1865, I mean, it, it literally is illegal in most states in the South, including those outside the South without slavery for black people to own property, right? So you can't build wealth in a capitalist society, you can't own property. So that's 250 years of history. So we're, we're starting at a deficit uh, at the moment of emancipation. And then when we come out of emancipation, what are the efforts that we see? We see African-Americans individually trying to purchase land, as I mentioned before, but then we also see them engaging in, 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 in the South in particular, in agricultural co-ops, right? Forming co-ops so that they won't be taken advantage of in the agricultural market. And those co-ops were reasonably successful and then the Great Depression hit. At that moment, a lot of sort of the black co-ops, even as they tried to survive through the depression, wound up losing steam. But at the same time, early 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, and you saw this co-ops all throughout the rural South and through the Midwest. We have black banking because African-Americans understood that they're being excluded from um, white financial institutions. So we're gonna try and develop our own banks. Now this starts with the Freedmen's Bank early on, 1867, 1870. But then you have black private banks, including one of the largest banks out there in Chicago, Bing, right? That were you know, providing African-Americans with loans to go to school, loans to purchase homes and the like. And then the Great Depression hits. And all those banks, literally, and all the assets that Black folk had get wiped away, right? But again, that didn't stop Black folk, right? They're like, all right, so what can we do? They begin to build up Black banks again. Moving into the 1960s, we see a real investment and surge uh, in Black businesses and black banks, but then what happens? At that moment, we have desegregation and white financial institutions realize that there is money to be made in the black community. And so those black owned institutions that were beneficiaries of segregation in the sense that they were able to tap into black capital, they begin to lose out because of the competition and the ability of white financial institutions to offer more incentives to, uh, uh, to black folk uh, just on, in terms of mass and scale. But again, that did not mean that black folk uh, weren't using and creating these cooperative solutions, building institutions on their own, building black businesses and were successful at it, right? Whether it was something like owning a sports team in the Negro leagues or a black newspaper or black barbershops and beauty shops and grocery stores, we have always done it and we've done it 
against the odds, but we haven't been able to do it at the same scale as a larger white society, in part because the larger white society has been creating structures to keep us from doing it at scale. Um, if I can follow up on that. Um, so we know that it's been attempted before, but um, I think back, harking back to the conversation earlier where we don't know, uh, I think in Crump's example, um, are just not educated on uh, things that are available. And now in our society now, um, someone posted something that David Banner said today, a lot of black folks are making more income than they have before and in, in, in doing so are complacent or afraid to lose their position that they have. How were um, in these past efforts that failed because of circumstances like the depression, how were they able to organize and um, move forward? How, how could we um, draw on that today to, to start something similar? Yeah, that's a critical question. And it's one I often, a version of that I get from uh, students uh, while I'm teaching who are interested in, in trying to change the world, right? They're like, they're like, Dr. Jeffries, I have this commitment, whether they're white students or black students, I got this commitment, I got this vision, I want to change the world, I want to make society just and equal. And we're, I, we're having a march for a protest. And, you know, we're, you know, so, you know, we're trying to get as many people out as we can. I'm like, all right, good, go for it. And then they have the march and they show up on the quad and then they come back the next day. I'm like, how'd the march go? And they're all disappointed. I'm like, why are y'all disappointed? It's like, well, we only had 20 people show up. And I was like, well, how many are you expecting? And they're like, well, you know, we got 7,000 black students on campus. So we wanted, and we thought we were gonna have a couple thousand, right? And I'm like, well, how many people you think came out to these marches and protests during the civil rights movement, right? In other words, you never got more than 10% of a local population to participate in any local movement. Never. If you got 10%, you were doing well. And so I say that to say, even when it comes to fighting for these basic economic rights, like the, we're not going to get everybody, but we don't need everybody. So we only need a small fraction of the people. We only need a small number of brothers who graduated from Morehouse in 1994, right, to get together and say, all right, these are some of the things that we need to do financially and guess what we can do it Absolutely. and even among them or, or we just need Vern Perry or Vern Perry right this is a drop of dime it will be good right? so you don't need everybody you just need a small group of dedicated people and then the rest will benefit and the, and, and the, most of the rest will support but if we're sitting around saying like oh man right all these brothers won't come together you know I can't get 98 percent of the people it's never going to happen. But the good news is, as they would say in church, you don't need a lot of people to make a big difference. That's one of the key lessons uh, from the Black freedom struggle from the civil rights. Civil yeah, rights. That's, that's ironic that you say this, because these brothers, we were all of us is always talking about where we going, we leaving this United States. But coming together every Sunday, we've been consistent about coming together and making this happen. I'm having hope. This is hope right here. <laughs> Dr. Jeffries, um, like we're going to have a kind of a kickback as we usually do. You're welcome to hang out. I just want to personally thank you for coming on today and spending your time and, and providing your expertise uh, and taking what we would normally have had as an intellectual conversation and, and 
completely taking it to another level. This was unbelievable. And I appreciate your, your intellect, your expertise, and your insight. And well, your time. I, yeah. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to come together and share some thoughts. Uh, and I've enjoyed listening to the podcast. Uh, so y'all keep, keep doing it because it, <laughs> it's really sparking some thoughtful and entertaining, but really thoughtful uh, conversation and, and, and thoughts in my mind, man. So I, I appreciate it. Y'all keep being 94 geniuses because that's how we do. Yeah, you did. Legendary 94, baby. There it is. Amen, brother. Amen. All right. I got to go chase some children, man. Hey. Crying in the background. Thank you. Y'all keep it up, man. Thank you. Thanks again, man. Let, let me right. know when you get that financial plan. Let me know, though. You know what I'm saying? Let me know. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> <laughs> let me, hook a brother up, man. Hook a brother That's up. Right. All right, y'all. All right. All right, All right. Peace.